This episode is brought to you by the depravity of mankind. For 300,000 years, the depravity of mankind has delivered to customers like you its premier product, the fear of violent death, a clientele that appreciates a lifestyle that is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. The depravity of mankind knows that you appreciate not having to pay for a bunch of frills like the belief in the innate goodness of strangers. Sure, you can renew your faith in humanity, but for what price? The depravity of man offers a perspective on humankind that's perfect for the household on a budget. How do they do it? Volume. They curate stories by the thousands, the hundreds of thousands, bleeding from newspapers and recounted without secession from history. And now our listeners can sample from their new unlimited assorted flavors worldviews. Bleak? Jaded? Depressing? And appalling? Of course you can still choose the flavor that made the depravity of mankind famous. Quiet desperation. Order at their website and use the promo code REREAD, one word. And thank you, the depravity of man, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. So this is a bit of a special episode. We were honored to talk to Michael Swanwick, who I hope everyone listening to this podcast already knows. Uh, he's written many wonderful novels and stories, had many, many award nominations and wins. So most notably, uh, his I think his first one was story Radio Waves, which won the World Fantasy Award in 96, uh, won the Nebula for the novel Stations of the Tide in 89 was given the Hugo numerous times for stories starting in 1999. And then I think every year, no, there's one year where he didn't get it all the way up till 2003, but he was nominated the whole time, which is not a bad run for stories. But yeah, we really wanted to talk to him because apart from perhaps Neil Gaiman, Swanwick is Wolf's biggest, loudest champion in the speculative fiction community. And in fact, as we'll discuss here in just a little bit, many people consider the novel Stations of the Tide to be something of a Wolf homage, um, although he doesn't agree with that. But <laughs> he also came to know Wolf through the usual conventions and friends and things like that. And we thought it would be wonderful if we could get another celebrated author's thoughts and stories on our guy. Uh, plus, we hoped he'd be kind of a fun, different interview for him, since most writers you know, naturally get asked about their own work. But we said, hey, would you talk to us for an hour about somebody else? <laughs> and he was very kind enough to agree. Yeah, this is such a big deal for me. I, I can only imagine what it is for you, Craig. Yeah, I remember reading Vacuum Flowers, one of his first novels, uh, second novel, I think, way back. And I even told him this when I approached him to ask about the interview. I was like, I remember that I picked up your book, Vacuum Flowers, and thought to myself, hey, and I was a teenager, I think. I can't remember exactly. But when I, I remember seeing it and thinking to myself, hey, this is by that guy who wrote that story in fantasy and sci-fi or whichever magazine <laughs> I magazines I was subscribed to. And I didn't like that. Maybe this book is better. <laughs> so, And then it turns out I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then I probably changed my mind about the story too. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, and so I've read all his books since then and always get excited when I see the magazines have a Swanwick story. And he does have a novel coming out right now. And we'll talk about that. But it just came out. Iron Dragon's Mother, which is the third in the Iron Dragon trilogy that's been spaced out over about 20 years or so. Bit of a, sometimes it gets called steampunk, but it's not. It's more like industrialized fairy is how he describes mm. it. Yeah, yeah. Well, why should we waste people's time anymore? Let's go ahead and get on to it and hear from Michael Swanwick. 
I also want to add that Michael's wife, Marianne Porter, runs a micropress called Dragon Stairs Press. She puts together these absolutely wonderful mini chapbooks and pamphlets of Michael's stories and essays. She makes them in batches of 50 to 100, so you have to always be ready to grab them. Uh, but they do share information about them on Facebook. I bought a bunch of them, and I just wanted to be sure to give her a plug here. You'll also hear her in the background a couple times when we're talking, which is just fine. <laughs> We really wanted to talk to a few people who knew Gene Wolfe, both personally and professionally, and we've gotten a chance to do that with some of the people who've written on him, but we've really wanted to talk to fellow writers as well. So this is a real treat for us. I know James actually met Gene Wolfe a couple times. I met him a couple times, but but not in any long capacity. So it's a treat for us to, to learn more about him from other sides than just from the fan side. Exaggerate the importance of Gene Wolfe to, uh, to me and to my career. Mm. So let's let's just clear the table on this. You uh, you said of Wolf in a blurb, I guess, for one of his books. I, I really don't know which one it was because I've probably seen it on a lot of other ones. Gene Wolf is the greatest writer in the English language alive today. Let me repeat that. Gene Wolf is the greatest writer in the English language alive today. I mean it. Shakespeare was a better stylist. Melville was more important to American letters, and Charles Dickens had a defter hand at creating characters. But among living writers, there is nobody who can even approach Gene Wolfe for brilliance of prose, clarity of thought, and depth of meaning. So do you remember You remember when you wrote that? I think uh, I forget what it was for. It was for one of his better books. <laughs> and I think that one covers it. It's all, every word of it's true. Yeah, it was probably one of the Long Sun books, now that I think about it. You know, other than a similar Ursula Le Guin quote, it's hard to imagine a paired quote and authority that would move books faster, unless Token could be exhumed to say, Gene Wolfe, yeah, I like him. So, <laughs> I, I've, it's often misattributed to a 2003 interview in the modern world, primarily, I suppose, because the Wikipedia page has a bad link. In that interview, you said something very similar, but it it didn't quite carry the same punch, but it was still similar. Gene Wolfe is, in my judgment, the single greatest writer in the English language alive today. An editor I know thinks he comes in second to Saul Bellow, but I've read Ravelstein and I beg to differ. <laughs> so for anyone who hasn't gotten around to reading you, we have established you are a Wolf fan. You're one of the tribe. That's true. My very first published story was um, uh, The Feast of St. Janus. And I wrote that not long after reading uh, Gene's Seven American Nights. And what happened there was in Seven American Nights, the background of it is that America is a third world country. And it's a third world country because of environmental depletion and environmental poisoning from all the chemicals um, that prop up our way of life. And he had in there an incredibly evocative image of how their preservatives in the bread, so it could be an inch thick in mold, but if you brushed it away, it was still would taste as fresh as if it had come right out of the oven, <laughs> which was not um, submitted as being an admirable thing. <laughs> and uh, that story just, just rang me like a bell. So for the longest time, I had this idea for a story in a, a future America where people worship Janis Joplin. And <laughs> for a long time, I resisted 
using that element. And then I thought, well, somebody had to have been the first person to write the first post-atomic war story. So I thought it was legitimate to swipe that from Gene. <laughs> so he's been a part of my genet my writing genetics from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, what is, do, do you have a favorite Wolf novel? Um, the Book of the New Sun. Oh, really? I, I wouldn't have expected that one. I kind of believed it would have been Fifth Head of Cerberus for variety Fifth of reasons. Fifth Head of Cerberus was an extraordinary book. It was a, again, it, it was it was one of those things that it showed me what could be done. Now, years later, so a few years ago, there was a, a fest shift for Gene, and I contributed a story to it. And while other people were predictably putting in the world of the world of the new sun, I set mine in the world of fifth and Cerberus. I was thinking about uh, I was thinking about Gene. I was thinking about about his fiction, and I was thinking about how to the degree to which he's fallen out of favor because of his treatment of women. So, known as the woman problem, as you know. <laughs> And I said, well, I'd like to write a feminist Gene Wolfe story. So I took the fifth head of Cerberus and I took the first couple of paragraphs and just reversed everything. Hmm. I turned um, winter to summer or summer to winter, I forget which, uh, east to west, morning to evening, uh, going to bed to waking up. And I made the two brothers two sisters. And then I set out with them to explore the world that he'd created in that story. So I reread it several times with, I think, almost as much admiration as I had the first time that I read it. It's amazing what a brilliant story that is. And there's, there is so much in it. And one thing that strikes you after you read it a few times is that there are literally two there are literally two surface readings of it. And one reading is as taking place on a colonized planet uh, where the colony is failing for environmental reasons. The people are having fewer and fewer babies. Nobody knows why. And they're, they're dwindling away. And the other reading is that it's taking place in hell, literally in hell. The father's uh, business is at 666 Sultan Bank. Avenue Road or whatever. Um, there are a lot of clues like that in there. And if you look at it from that angle, then it becomes understandable why nobody in that story ever behaves well at all. They are <laughs> all of them very, very bad people. And the very best you can expect of somebody is that he'll kill his father as expected. <laughs> but along the way, they'll do a lot, a lot of worse things. And the thing about this is it's not a dichotomy that can be collapsed. You can decide to believe one or the other, but the evidence is equal for both halves. There's also the fact that he did extraordinary amounts of research for this. Gene was politically conservative, but he wasn't politically conservative in the way that we need now, which is you're either red state or blue state, and you've got a set of beliefs that you have to subscribe to. Uh, and he... Uh, if, if you look at it from uh, the viewpoint of colonial studies, of the influence of colonialization on native peoples up through the current date, you realize he did an extraordinary amount 
of research into the problem of people who have been conquered trying to become the conquerors, mm. trying to assume all the trappings. Um, I reread it only five times for that one story. If I'd had enough time to write a novella-length version, I would have read it another ten times, and there would have been much more in my version of it. In your version, did you write it as a colonization story or as a story in hell? I wrote it as both. Mm. I wrote it, and I got to the end, and I went... When I came to the end, I said, my God, this is a bleak, bleak ending. <laughs> so I wrote another paragraph on to the end to make it worse. <laughs> <laughs> so that story has two endings. That is one bleak, horrible ending in which everything is awful and, 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 and cannot get any worse, and then it gets worse. <laughs> so I, I think I was doing... Justice to Gene in that respect, it's still a pale shadow of, what the, of the story that Gene wrote originally. What do you love about the Book of the New Sun? Probably the best uh, work of science fiction written yet. <laughs> I love the writing. I love the thought. I love the creation. I love all the de- I love all the little details in it. Like several times, he mentions the, the going out in the green light of the moon. And it's only if you're paying attention about the third time that gives you enough clues to realize that the moon has been terraformed and is covered with forests. So the light of the moon really is green. Tiny little things like the multicolored beach sand called chromium, which is actually grains of glass from previous civilizations. Or one of the stories that's told inside the novel is ends and said this happened so long ago that people still knew the law that the procreator had given by which they might always know whether an action was virtuous or not i looked at it and said oh my god this is so far in the future that they have forgotten the golden rule <laughs> and the entire the entire extended novel is full of moments like that just full of brilliance full of, of bravura storytelling it's just uh and it's 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 like somebody gives you uh, a box for Christmas and you open it up and it's a year's worth of, of more Christmases. Uh, just an extraordinarily rich, full sequence. How would you go about recommending the, uh, the Book of the New Sun to someone who hadn't read it? I have I've done it several times and um, usually I'll be someplace like a dentist or so. And uh, they ask me what I do. I say science fiction. They say, well, I don't read science fiction. What would you recommend? So I just say, pick up a book called The Shadow of the Torturer by Gene Wolfe and read it. And if you like that book, then there are three more like that. And if you don't like that book, there is an author who's written dozens of books. And you can write off as an entire career with a clean conscience. It's just not for you. Mm. And I've had many people come back to me and thank me for recommending that book. Do you have a sense, you mentioned before about the, you know, the woman problem. Um, and we've noticed in a lot of places that it seems like Wolf is being sometimes dismissed by other, not other writers necessarily, but by some readers as someone who is sort of old school or things like that. And yet he has such praise from you, from Le Guin, from everybody. Do you have any sense of, what his legacy is going to be? Well, the, the, the woman problem is, 
Well, I was born in 1950, so my wife, in a, when she's in a kindly mood, will say, for a man born in 1950, you're not too bad. <laughs> so we can't expect too much feminist insight from me. I think that part of all the women tend to be negative and awful aspect uh, comes from the fact that I don't think Jean had a very optimistic, uh, a very optimistic outlook on human beings. I think mm -hmm. that the Korean War took that out of him. Um, but uh, a lot of women I talk to say that they really feel that, and it makes them uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So uh, I cannot say. I would like to think that eventually all the current politics will be so far away and with luck solved, <laughs> with luck <laughs> resolved, uh, that you'll be able to read this as, as, uh, cre as created in a historical period. The way that we can read uh, Samuel Johnson for pleasure, despite the fact that he didn't believe in democracy, um, Scots or Americans. Mm -hmm. Well, we were wondering, you had mentioned in an interview that at one point you were collaborating with Wolf. That was um, Michael Andre uh, Driussi had, uh, was, was president sometime when Gene and I were both in his presence. So he said, why don't you two collaborate on story? I said, oh, fine. And Gene said, Wolf said, fine. And we exchanged a couple of emails planning it. And uh, my my first idea for a story Gene rejected because he was currently writing it. <laughs> <laughs> was that Wizard Knight? That was that would have been the second uh, that we saw Soldier of Sidon. Mm. But we were going to to set a story in in Egypt, mm. and we had a lot of good stuff. Um, I may yet some write it someday if I ever find the time. But we were both very busy, and we just never got around to it really so there wasn't there weren't any any disagreements there wasn't any uh clash of visions it was just you know being a writer is an extraordinarily busy thing mm. and there are times when it doesn't matter what it is you want to do you have to do something else for six months or three months or a year right and that just got in the way well speaking of collaborations you have a novel coming out that you wrote with the late great Gardner Duzois at the end of August, City Under the Stars. Uh, serendipitously, I just recently purchased the ReaderCon 22 souvenir book that has a couple of essays by you about Duzois. Yeah, well, when, when Gardner died, I think I spent a, a month doing nothing but writing appreciations of him, <laughs> uh, and which was not so easy as you would think, since I, I felt I had an obligation to him that everyone be different from the others and have a different take. Um, Gardner, I met Gardner in 1974, no, 1975, one of those years. Mm -hmm. So I've known each other for a long time. And uh, eventually we began writing stories with each other, sometimes with Jack Dan. Uh, occasionally when two other people were involved in that. And as a result of that, about 20 years ago, he and I wrote a story called The City of God. This was Gardner had begun a novel in the 1970s, early 1970s. And it was a beautiful piece of writing. It began with a description of a man shoveling coal into a hole. 
And he does this for several pages. And it sounds boring, but in fact, it's riveting. You get to watch a man's life destroyed in front of your eyes. And at the end of those so however many pages, there is nothing for him to, to do, nowhere for him to go. And he goes on and things get worse. And Gardner had that for 20 years before he finally decided that he never was going to finish that story because he'd run across a plot problem. <laughs> and he gave it to me and said, uh, see if you can if you can come up with a novella for this. I looked at it and I saw the solution. And it ended up, we wrote this novella together. It was published, people liked it. We were very proud of it. It was probably the most grim thing Gardner Dozois ever wrote. And he does have a reputation for being a grim writer. Mm. And over the years, he and I talked about doing two more novellas, The City of Man, then The City of Angels and City of Man. And then selling them individually and then putting the three together and making a novel. And again, like with Gene, like we were both very busy. Things got in the way. But then a couple of years back, Gardner and I both happened to have a little bit of free time and we started the second novella. And we were halfway through that second novella when he died. And that put an end to the idea of the three novellas because I could not write the, I could finish the second novella and convince you it was in his voice. I could not write the third novella from scratch in his voice. But I really wanted the novel because Gardner had a happy ending for it. And it was a genuine, uplifting, feel-good happy ending too. So I took most of the plot that we'd planned for the second novella, tossed that out, took the remainder of the plot from the third novella and the ending for the entire thing, and I wrote it out to the ending and through the ending. And then I put it together with the first novella, broke it into chapters, did a final rewrite so it would be all in the same voice. And what you have now is a Gardner de Soie novel, which nobody will believe while they're reading it has a happy ending. My wife was nine tenths of the way through that. And Marianne said, said, this doesn't have a happy ending, does it? And I said, happy endings for anybody. And she said, oh, yeah, one of your happy endings. <laughs> but in fact, she admitted it was. It was an upbeat ending. It was, it was a, it's a beautiful ending. The specific words were mine, but the plot, what happens in it was Gardner's. And Marianne read it and she cried. Well, you know, regarding dark endings... You famously said that after Anne McCaffrey's Dragon series, you chose to write I Am Dragon's Daughter because writers after her series had begun portraying dragons as lovable and you wanted to bring back the sinister, villainistic edge to dragons. And you also said, but the inspiration behind that was the way writers tend to soft pedal evil to make excuses for it. I've seen enough evil that I refuse to cut it any slack. And the thing is, this is interesting to me because the book is so often accused of being nihilistic. How do you think your perspective was misunderstood? I don't, I don't, 
I don't see how you can call it nihilistic at all, except, as you say, misunderstanding it. I know there was like one critic who was really angry because Jane, the protagonist, did not act, did not behave in a responsible, moral, Christian fashion. <laughs> and the thing about Jane was Jane was all through the novel. She is looking for answers and she's looking for a way to behave that will make sense in the world. And I always thought that if the Watchtower people had come to her door and knocked and she let them in, they'd have had an easy convert hmm. because she's looking for a way to behave well. But there's nobody there who can, she's not in her own universe. There's nobody to tell her how the proper way to behave well. And people who are criticizing me for have putting some, having someone thrown into a factory in fairyland as a little girl and then more or less not raised at all by, by trolls and demons and such, wondering why they, she doesn't behave in a, in a moral fashion. Well, why, if it's so easy, why do these people send their own kids to Sunday school? Why don't they mm -hmm. just like let them run around and just naturally behave well? Because mm -hmm. you have to know what the behavior is. Jane is uh, at the at near the end of the novel. She does descend into nihilism because nothing else works, mm. and it's only then that she is extended mercy by the goddess, and the goddess extends her mercy because there is no other way of saving her at that point. I think the the role of the author is not to impose his moral his morals on the reader as i think um, c.s lewis did alas in the narnia books but the role of the right the reader has the writer has a responsibility to present the world as honestly as possible and your moral vision of the world is part of that honesty so if this world seemed kind of awful it was because it didn't have a moral center. It's interesting to put that with Wolf too, because we know a lot of people are attracted to Wolf sometimes because they think that what they're going to get is that kind of a fantasy world with a certain kind of moral certainty, I suppose, to it. And and on the in the discussions that we've had, there are lots of people who definitely try to take that approach. Not necessarily mine, but it's how I know a lot of people take it. Do you have a sense of how, I mean, you've already mentioned Wolf being a politically conservative person. Does that, do you feel like, inform his fiction directly? Or do you think in his fiction he was more like you're doing, presenting the world as he saw it rather than as he hoped it would be? I think it varies from work to work. Uh, Gene and I were both Catholic. He was a convert, and I was I was born into the faith. So we have very, I, I, I feel like he has a, a good solid moral grounding and uh, our differences are mostly from those two perspectives i mean uh he he thought that uh, that catholic guilt uh was a um a myth and uh by god i will go to the grave feeling <laughs> about it uh, but then of course i was i was raised catholic i had a catholic education and nuns use guilt as one of their primary tools. There's no there's no denying that one, or at least all the nuns I ever knew did. 
I, I think Gene was, you know, sometimes like in, in, in the Night Wizard books, uh, he is definitely telling a religious story there, and he's bringing that up to the fore. But if you read what he had to write about writing those books, uh, he was thinking about the amorality of the world and the evil of the world that he saw in the Korean War. So at their most overtly religious, he's just talking about the world the way that it is and or should be. Well, your description of people's reaction to Jane and the Iron Dragon's Daughter sort of reminds me a lot of people's reaction to Severian in the Book of the New Sun. Uh, Severian is a tricky, is a slippery character. There's no getting around it. <clears throat> I, I tend to like... Um, I tend to like him best uh, on the surface, the way that he presents himself as as an innocent uh, wandering the world and uh, doing his best. I do think, as a, as a Catholic, Jean uh, couldn't see anybody as being any human being as being one hundred percent good or one hundred percent evil. They're all all of us prey to our weaknesses and all of us capable of rising above ourselves and. Again, at his, at, in his best works, I, I see that I see that everywhere. Um, in the the book of the short sun, uh, uh, Patera Silk is definitely a flawed priest. But one of the first things he does when he encounters a uh, uh, a career criminal is is to is is to make him basically his sidekick <laughs> because he's. Uh, he, his his religion his, his his religious feeling is genuine, and he really does believe uh, the gospel he's preaching, even though the gospel he's literally preaching is in fact a false one. Mm-hmm. Well, and he's he's subverted it into a kind of good personal religion, right? A personal code. Yes, he's he's he believes in it. And so he does not believe it can possibly have wickedness behind it or, or uh, sinful intent. And yes, he's, he has transformed it. I think it's actually probably a really wonderful metaphor for the situation of genuine, genuinely religious and thoughtful people in this world. You know, Wolf was not nihilistic, but I find it interesting that he never got labeled as nihilistic. He, he can definitely come off as jaded about the way people use the word evil. His protagonists regularly embrace cannibalism, for example. Yeah, I, I remember eating with Wolf and sensed that he had a complicated moral compromise with eating meat himself. Yeah, he wasn't, though he wasn't a vegetarian. I think that says something about his perspective a Severian all but destroys the human race in order to bring a future that he deems best. In Soldier of the Mist, in Soldier of Reedy, the protagonist spends a lot of time in alliance with the Spartans, a nation I heard Wolf himself say made the Nazis look like Boy Scouts. I'll grant the possibility of hyperbole there, but maybe not. And then in An Evil Guess, the beginning of it, uh, the character Gideon Chase, who who might be evil, or he might be a co-protagonist, but he delivers what I think is one of the most compelling nihilistic arguments to the president of the United States, a hardly disguised George W. Bush. 
what do you think about Wolf's morality? What about, what is the place you think? Uh, we kind of covered this before, but what do you think is the morality that Wolf is trying to convey, if anything? Well, I don't think he's trying to convert anyone. I, I, th- I think he's trying to explore a very complex reality, which is to say our own. And he's not willing to um, simplify it in order to make religious points. I really can't put any better than that, I'm afraid. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't th- I don't think he's there preaching at us, except for those few cases where he does, overtly. I think he's just trying to explain the world the way that he understands it as best he understands it. What's your favorite Wolf short fiction? <clears throat> Probably um, The Eye Flash Miracles. Mm-hmm. Because it's got a little bit of everything. And it has it has that sense of wonder in it all the way through. It has astonishing moments. It has... Um, um, it has some, uh, the moment when uh, he sees uh, a, a, a lion and a scarecrow and a, a man made out of tin, little, and the little boy begins to dance with them. And the people he's with uh, do not see any of these three creatures. What they do see is this little boy begin dancing, and he goes, dances off a cliff, and then dances in the air for a while, and dances back. And that is just, just marvelous. It's this wondrous piece of magic, which they then proceed to explain in their own, from their own very different perspectives. And it also has got just the, 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 the writing in it, the prose, is every bit as magical. The little boy at one point is given a sticky bun. He's hungry. He bites into it, hoping for a raisin. And that's such a wonderful little detail. And you can taste that sticky bun as a result. It's full of surprises. It's got, it's got some astonishing darkness in it, which is um, repelled by a, by a decent human act. And it has an, an ending that makes me laugh. <laughs> uh, it's, got, it's got things that normally uh, I'd have to read five or six really wonderful stories to get all in one. I was wondering if you were going to say tracking song, because I saw that you were asking about that one on Facebook the other day. So oh, and tracking song. My personal favorite. <laughs> well, Gardner Dozois and I, um, this was like one we discussed often, because neither of us could figure out exactly what was going on there. You can tell that the, the guy, the, the protagonist, um, is on an ice planet that's being terraformed and that he's one of the people, one of the terraformers from mm-hmm. off planet. And as a writer, both Gardner and I could see the clues that Gene was laying out the little trail of breadcrumbs, but we could never put together exactly what it was. He was telling us at the end, he looks up and he sees somebody and that person has wings. <laughs> yeah, and that's the moment at which Gene Wolfe explains everything to you if you're as smart as Gene Wolfe is <laughs> well uh, like that guy we often said you know it's like the problem with Gene Wolfe is that he assumes that the reader is as smart as he is 
but nobody's as smart as he is. That's exactly what Joan Gordon said mm-hmm. <laughs> about his writing, which is brings up something I can't, Craig and I have discussed this multiple times before, that I can't think of another writer whose entire body of work has so little consensus from the readership about what is happening at the plot level. Oh, I can, I can tell you part of what's going on there. If you take a look at, uh, at the ziggurat, and uh, there's a man in the cabin with his two daughters. He's uh, going through a uh, very hotly contested divorce. His uh, ex-wife is accusing him of, of really terrible things. And he might be a very nice guy or he might be a monster. And the ziggurat appears. It's a kind of a time-space machine. It's manned by women. And it's sort of there, and it's at the same time, it's not there. And if you read the story, there are two interpretations, and one of which uh, the ziggurat is from a future which is uh, run entirely by women, men no longer exist. And the other is he's, 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 he's evil, wicked, and crazy. And the stories will not collapse into each other. In one of his very few essays, Gene said that uh, for a story to be of genuine literary merit, it has to come very close to meaning the opposite of what it means. And if you look at stories like The Ziggurat and uh, Fifth Head of Cerberus and it extends to many, but not all of his other works. Uh, you can see that at work. You can easily, if you if you misread the story, you're going to read it as meaning the exact opposite of what he wants it to mean. Mm-hmm. But he obviously feels that's not on him. That's your responsibility. <laughs> well, we've joked before wondering if all of his editors really understood his stories or not, um, especially some of the later ones that do get quite confusing. Sometimes are they getting published? Is he explaining to the editors exactly what's going on? Because we're often still confused by some of those, some of those stories. And yeah, how do you proofread a story if you don't really know for sure what's <laughs> going on? Uh, well, I know that Gardner, I, actually, I think Gardner would run tracking song. But uh, other than that, I can't picture Gardner running a, a story that he didn't understand. And I know that Gene was like very difficult to work with. And he probably was not gonna gonna tell his editor in any great explain his story to the to the editor. He felt that was not his job. You know, he wrote that, and that was what he did. David Hartwell told me a story once, and he said when he was writing, I asked him what it was like editing Gene. He said mostly he just ran him. And when he was doing the book of the New Sun, there were two separate women whose nipples were described as having a specific fruit color, <laughs> a, very, a rather distinctive one. So he called them up. He said, okay, the, one of them's got to change the color. And Gene said, oh, yes, of course, you're right. We'll make this one such and so a color. And he says, nevertheless, it was the other color. <laughs> so, oh, 
Here, I, I want to just throw this out, out for no reason at all. Um, Gene was a really lovely storyteller in person. Mm. And uh, this one time, Marianne and I were sitting talking to him, and he started talking about his daughter, the private detective. <laughs> and uh, he told us, uh, along with other cases, the case of the white gorilla. Would you like to hear that? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> so... It was a copyright infringement case. It was a toy company had bought the right to do a white gorilla. And there was a toy factory that was doing unlicensed knockoffs of the gorilla. So the daughter did her investigation and she came with the police into the office of the man managing the factory. And they, they, burst in with a subpoena for manufacturing white gorillas. And he says, and he said, and the man looks up from his desk and says, no gorillas, no gorillas. <laughs> and Gene's daughter pointed to a cabinet nearby with a white gorilla on top of it. He looked at that and he said, one gorilla, one gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> he was really a lovely person, you know. Um, yeah, he was every bit as sweet as you would have hoped that he was well, people tell me he was difficult back in the day um by the time that i knew him to walk up to him and say hello gene you know um that was all gone mm. uh, but marianne and i uh, ran across around a convention and we're, and we're and we're talking to him and he began talking about how the weekend before he had gone to a library sale and it was a sunday so it was the last day of the sale and you could buy a paper sack full of books for 50 cents. So he was talking on a wonderful way. He was buying all these wonderful books for 50 cents a bag. And he bought three bags and he brought them home. He says, and I'm looking through them. And all these old books, they have inscriptions that say things like, to Claudia from your aunt Gertrude. See? He says, and you look at these things. And you look at them. And all these people... They're, they're dead. And he almost burst into tears. Mm. And afterwards, Marianne said to me, that is the most emotional man I have ever met. <laughs> but I think that's related to his greatness. Mm. I think that incapacity to feel passionate, uh, to, to not feel passionate, that that. Everything that he experienced and felt, I think, he was feel, he was feeling without filters. Mm. And I think that was a lot of the motive force, the motive power behind his writing. I remember him talking about finishing An Evil Guest and how sad he was because he was never going to be able to write any more about the protagonist, uh, Cassie Casey. And I thought he was going to cry when he was, when he was, when he said that, which always struck me as odd. There must be a hint in that about that book. Why couldn't he write more about her? So. I, um, I'm exact. I'm the exact opposite. I ran into uh, Carol Emschweller and said, how are you doing Carol? And I said, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm bereft. She said, I've just finished a book. And these characters I've been living with for over a year are all gone. It feels like they're dead. I said, doesn't it feel that way to you? And I, I gave it some serious thought. And I said, no, 
I feel like when I finish the last page and I turn it over, I imagine all the characters running down the street, waving their hands in the air, going, I'm free, I'm free, I'm going to have a hamburger, and nothing's going to happen to me. <laughs> I'm going to move to Indiana. <laughs> oh, we should talk about Stations of the Tide, because that is the book. I don't think it's fair, by the way. I'm going to start. I don't know that. It, I, I don't know what you meant. I, I would like to know what what was in your mind when you wrote it. But it's often referred to as a wolf homage, or less charitably, as a, a wolf ripoff. I I do see some wolf in there, though. I, it feels like a man who happened to be in Wolf's kitchen and fished through his pantry and cooked up an original recipe. Is there any connection in Stations of the Tide to, to Wolf in your mind? Actually, I was thinking a lot more of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, 100 Years of Solitude. And, but when I went to, to choose the, the protagonist, I needed somebody who was in a way a cipher. And I needed somebody who had certain characteristics that I could keep secret from the reader for a long time. And so I used Gene Wolfe as the model for the bureaucrat. Oh. When I first met him, and that would have been in the late 70s, I think. Yeah, like 78 or 79, before I published my first story. He was the most ordinary-looking person in the world. He was not this old man with this astonishing mustache and the cane and that and that great physical presence. He looked like a guy who worked for Plant Engineering Magazine. Uh, <laughs> he 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 was not prepossessing at all. But I had read his work, so I was I was vastly impressed by him. And for my protagonist, the bureaucrat, I wanted somebody who could disappear into the smallest of crowds. And yet, inside, he was Gene Wolfe. On the outside, somebody you could underestimate inside, the most impressive person you're going to meet. When I went to write the acknowledgments page for that novel, there were a number of homages in there. Uh, C.L. Moore's Of Woman Born, I had where the, the, the woman in the robotic body says that when she dies, so she'll just lose will and the golden rings her body's made of will just fall down like like rain and i had a somebody with a puppet that was exactly that and it takes his hands apart and it falls down in a rain of golden rings so i mentioned seal moore and i came down the list and i started to write in gene wolf and i stopped and said no you're just bragging there <laughs> because there wasn't anything specific other than he himself that had stolen from Gene's work. So um, his influence on me is unquestionable, but at that point, no, I wasn't trying to write a Gene Wolfe novel or a Gene Wolfe-like novel. If I realized that, I probably would not have written it. <laughs> that does remind me of a story I read in an interview. You said one time when it, it was either at ReaderCon or, or somewhere large where you introduced yourself as the greatest writer in the room except for gene wolf <laughs> and it was true <laughs> that was the first reader con by the way that's what it was. Uh, i was that was there as was gene so he was he was the first he was the first guest of honor there which was a very good uh, 
choice on their part. We forget at the beginning of Gene's career, he was a hard sell to uh, publishing. Uh, Gardner Dossois read uh, Fifth Head of Cerberus, the first novella, in a workshop and was just flattened by it. And for years, he and uh, and Jack Dan, anytime they went to New York City to talk to, to the to their editors and publishers, they talked up Gene Wolfe. And uh, the response was, yeah, 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 another, another one of your new wave art people. <laughs> so uh, it was a slow climb up for Gene. He definitely seemed to have a lot of fans among, oh, I don't know, the, the writers that ended up in the pages of Orbit all the time they seem to hold him in such high regard, whereas he was probably unknown. Yeah, they could, they could see what he was doing and how well he was doing it. Um, most of them were trying, were trying things very closely related to a lot of that. And when you're trying to write something and somebody does it better than you, you notice it and you appreciate it. That's all there is there. Uh, so you want to ask me what my favorite uh, wolf word is? Yes. yes. <laughs> that was another one coming. It's a fulligan, which is the color uh, in the Book of the New Sun that is blacker than black. And obviously it comes from fuliginous or sooty. But when I read it, I just happened to have worked in uh, technology transfer for solar energy. So I was aware that what he was talking about was a selective black. And in solar energy, for solar collectors, normally solar collectors are black, but a selective black also absorbs the radiation into the infrared. So you're absorbing more radiation, which is why Severian's Fulligan cloak is particularly warm. And uh, I felt very clever to have seen that. <laughs> And also aware of how many other things there were that because I hadn't worked in that particular industry, those <laughs> went right past me. Yeah, he had to. He, I would guess then they would have to go without shirts. It would have been too hot. There's a great deal more thought goes into uh, uh, Gene's stuff than than shows, mm -hmm. unless you're willing to to uh, to do a lot of research and. Um, you know, I love the guys who do all, all, all the research and they, and they dig deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. But I think at some point you reach a point where you go, did Gene intend this? Or have <laughs> they used this human pattern finding, pattern making ability to invent this? And you reach a yeah. point where you cannot tell. Yeah, that's true. We wouldn't have a podcast if it weren't for that effect. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I wanted to say is in the past, I've always offered Stations of the Tide as the book. To, of yours to introduce people to, but I think I'm changing my mind to Iron Dragon's Mother now after having read this one. It's it, even though I mean it, it reads just fine without the other two Iron Dragon, I think. And it is better it's, because the first book was written 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I just I love exploring this side of industrialized fairy where we get into the the more bureaucratic side of things even, and it's just incredible fun. It's smart all the way through, but just incredibly fun book too. You know. Um, I did, I did. One thing I'm proud of in that is that it occurred to me that this was a world ordered by the goddess. So I tried as an experiment, I made the female the uh, default gender. And so 
if there was a reason for somebody to be male, he was male. And even if that reason was just so that in a long conversation you could have he said, she said, and not have to keep going back to their names. Mm-hmm. And I found that, uh, A, it could be done, but it was trickier than you thought. I would constantly be writing something, a scene, there'd be a bus driver, and I would stop and go, well, why is the bus driver male? And then have to go back and rewrite that section. It was um, it, it was a surprising, it it was surprising to me how well it worked, and it, that it was a a pretty good mechanism for uh, forcing me to rethink characters to take them more seriously. I was going to ask about that because I hadn't really picked up on it until we meet Raven for the first time. And then as soon as she flips her hair back and does the smoke and, and you point that out, I was like, ah, <laughs> now I, now I, now I caught on. Okay. So, but yeah. And, and at that point, then I started to look for, for things like that. I guess we can just ask an open-ended question. Is there, are there any other stories about Wolf or things that you hope people would know about him or, or remember about him? Um, I know what else I'll say. I would, he was, uh, he was, uh, Invested into the Chicago Literary Hall of Fame. I forget the exact phrasing of that. That's where I met you. Yes, you don't remember and, it, but that's where I did. And, uh, and, and there are not many writers I would have flown to Chicago for on my own dime. <laughs> uh, Gene Wolfe is definitely at the top of the list. And uh, it was a, a, a lovely uh, weekend. But for me, the high point of that was seeing uh, Gene riding the merry-go-round uh, mm-hmm. like a little boy. And if you go onto YouTube and you go searching, you can find the video of him just riding the, riding that wooden horse around and around and laughing and smiling and happy. That's probably the best way to remember him. I think he wouldn't mind that. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. I Oh, yeah, this is so great. This has been fascinating and fun and wonderful to learn new stories about this guy we've read so much of. Oh, anyway, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for doing it. Thank you so much. I'm always happy to, well, I'm always happy to help the memory of Gene, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I liked it better when he was around where we do him some physical good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was a terrific conversation, Craig. I really do hope he'll come back and maybe do a chapter with us. Sorry, I was kind of starstruck at the beginning, <laughs> but <laughs> but I got over it, I hope, by the end. But no, that was great. Some stuff about Wolf I never knew, so that was really fun. Yeah. But, all right, well, next time we'll be back on the regular chapter train, mm-hmm. moving with chapter 22. Yeah, and we certainly hope you have comments, thoughts, corrections, and complaints, and bring them to us on the Facebook group, the subreddit, Twitter, or email. You can find out how to do that on the show notes. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your wolf-reading friends. And until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you. And if you don't hear from us, call the cops. (laughs) Thanks a lot.
Let's test this one more time. One, two, three, four. Five, six. Okay. Well, you're, there's actually a yeah. little bit of a delay. There's a delay. It doesn't there's seem like it was bad as the other one. Well, I mean, we can put this off. Nah, let's just go ahead and do it.